All right. Let's uh, get after it here, thinking about what is the most controversial doctrine of Christianity in our contemporary society. What did you guys say at your tables over here? Yeah, Tom. Sarah mentioned we all agree that only through Christ are you saved. Oh, okay. The salvation comes through Christ alone. And this is the kind of thing that um, sort of transcends time and place, that that's something that really just rubs people the, the wrong way, the exclusivism of Christianity. Okay, very good. Other, did other, others of you say that as, as well? Okay, other ideas or, or thoughts? Yeah, Esther. Is Jesus really God? Is Jesus really God? So just the divinity of Christ, which probably goes hand in hand with um, what Tom was saying there, but yeah, the is Jesus really God? Is he equal with God the Father? Good. Other ones? I'm not sure it's controversial, but Chris and I were talking how just the idea that you're that you're saved by your by by, by faith, yeah, and not by your works. Yes, right. Like this performance type thing, like even goes kind of goes against like the foundation of this country in the sense that you're. You're supposed to achieve and sure. do things and, you know, individuality, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yes. It's, it's not really controversial, I guess, but it, 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 it's countercultural. It's countercultural. Yeah, that's well put. Maybe it's not controversial per se, but it is countercultural. I mean, this is what uh, Paul says, that, you know, the message, uh, proclamation of Christ crucified is a stumbling block for people because, I mean, for one thing, just how um, utterly mind-bending it is to think not only that God would become man, but that he would die and that he would die in such an ignoble way, but then that our salvation would be simply by trusting in his finished work. Yeah, that's super countercultural in so many ways. At court. There was, oh, back a few years ago, but maybe it's more than a few because I'm old. But, <laughs> but this idea that if you were Christian, bad things did not happen. Oh, sure, right, right. Uh, that you were blessed. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that's still around. So court said the idea that if you're Christian, that, you know, bad things don't happen to you. Everything is just, is just hunky-dory all the time. And we, we can all agree that that's the case, right? I, mean, I met uh, the barber this week, as you can tell. Um, and it was another one of these beautiful sunny days that we had. And uh, the, we were just kind of making small talk, you know, and saying... Oh, it's so, it's so nice out. And then Barbara's like, yeah, it's been this way for a couple of weeks. Yeah, it really is. He says, we must have done something right. That God's blessing us with this. And, you know, it was just, whatever, it was an offhand comment. But I think that is sort of our, just our basic default uh, intuition is, well, things are going well, we must be doing something right. My life is going smoothly, I must be really, you know, God's just looking after me. And then when it goes wrong, that's the shadow side of that. Any, any other thoughts, things that are controversial? I mean, I'm surprised. Nobody's mentioned the obvious things, right? All of just the, kind of the hot topic stuff, whether it be about sexuality or even about creation, evolution, those sorts of things. Um, all of those, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of controversial things that we believe, let's just be honest. Uh, but I think, I think you're right with that sense of ultimately what's most controversial or what causes the most stumbling is this profession, and we have a, um, a, core, a core confession of it in today's passage, that Christ and him alone is the source of our salvation. So we'll get more into that as we go along here. We're in Acts chapter 4, and uh, we're continuing in Acts chapter 3. You had Peter uh, being the conduit of healing for this lame man. 
Peter makes it a point to say he's not the one that did it, but it's the name of Jesus Christ, the power of Christ, not our power or piety that did it. Um, and now it's going to go on even further. Peter gives a, a speech to all the Jews who are gathered there, but now Peter and John are being brought before the council. So let's pick up uh, in Acts chapter 4. I'll read the first uh, four verses here. <clears throat> and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Okay, so here you see this theme that's going to be a recurring theme throughout the book of Acts. The um, disciples are boldly, fearlessly going out and proclaiming the word. The word is doing the work. Okay, it says 5,000 people came to faith before we heard 3,000 people. The point isn't the, the certain amount of numbers. The point is the word is bearing fruit and growing, right? But at the same time, that's causing opposition and hostility. And I want you to, to notice this because it's an interesting little comment that it makes. Um, so number two on your handout, the source of the resurrection creates controversy, not its fact, source of the resurrection creates controversy, not its fact. Do you notice this? In verse 2, it says the, uh, these leaders at the temple, they were greatly annoyed because they, the disciples, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. See, the belief in the resurrection of the dead was commonplace among the Jews. Now, it wasn't among all of them. And uh, a famous scene from later in Acts is in Acts chapter 23, where it says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Why does Paul say that? To get both sides. Now this is, you know, you know your Bible trivia a little bit, or your Sunday school songs, right? The Sadducees, they are... Sad, you see, right. Because why? No resurrection. No, they don't believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees were kind of the enlightened progressives of, of their day. They were, the, they were the elites, really. And they did not hold to the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees, they get a bum rap for a lot of reasons, but they did believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so Paul, really shrewdly, he sees that he's got both Sadducees and Pharisees. How does he know? I don't know for sure whether it was a matter of dress or maybe you can just tell, right? Um, but uh, he, he raises this so that he, he sets them against one another, triangulates them, ra right, rather than getting himself into it. But, yeah, Chip. Um, I think you're at camp point said that Jesus essentially was a Pharisee. And like he would have, of that tribe, of that, of that group, he would have been a similar thought of as part of that group. So, yes, yeah, so you've got, um, at this time, you've got the, the Pharisees, You've got the Sadducees. These are, so to speak, the denominations, or the main um, tribes that there were at the time. There were the Essenes, and there were the Zealots. Okay? Um, so the Pharisees, we know about. They're the ones who are the most dedicated to following the law, very religious in, in nature. Sadducees, as I say, very much more progressive and um, not necessarily uh, believing everything that's in the Scripture. The Essenes, they were sort of the Amish of their day. They were the ones who were withdrawing 
from the community at large. In fact, what we have with the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found at Qumran, that's thanks to the Essenes who had withdrawn from society as a whole and they had these scrolls um, of, the, of the scripture. And then the fourth group are the Zealots. Their name kind of says it, but they're the ones who were ready to take up arms okay, um, against uh, the, the occupying Romans. In fact, within, among the disciples, um, they're almost all uh, probably coming from a Pharisee background. We don't know for sure, but we do know that there was a zealot. That si there was Simon the Zealot. I mean, it was right there in his name. Um, but there probably were not any Sadducees or Essenes um, among them. So, long way to say, yeah, in many ways, Jesus looked more like a Pharisee than, than anything else. But John the Baptist? John the Baptist, um, I mean, he, as kind of a prophetic guy, he would have... Um, probably been identified most with the Pharisees, but he also resembles, this was not like its own separate tribe, but kind of a sub-thing, the um, Nazarites, okay? Not people from Nazareth, but this goes back to the Old Testament. The Nazarites were sort of like the monks among the Jews. They took special vows, they wouldn't cut their hair, they wouldn't drink wine, other things like that. And so that's how John would have been most uh, closely identified or associated with. So. <clears throat> they say what's upsetting the people is that they're proclaiming the resurrection, not, but not merely that, but that it's, the resurrection has already come in Christ, in Jesus. Okay? Whereas what they believed would happen is that at the end of time, Messiah is going to come, he will usher in the age to come, and there will be the general resurrection of the dead. What's different is that one has been raised ahead of time, Christ Jesus. And now, ultimately, we await the full harvest when he comes again. Okay. Right. Questions or comments about that? And there's a lot of things, a lot of ways that they're running afoul here, but that's the thing that really irks them, is the resurrection in Jesus. Becky, did you have your hint? Okay. All right, let's carry on then to the next paragraph. <clears throat> so on the next day, their rulers and elders, this is verse 5, and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the key verse, verse 12. We'll get there in a second. Notice, first of all, that it already looks like an unfair fight, right? You've got the elites, you've got the leaders of society, and now they're picking on this little band of disciples and saying, okay, they're going to start a fight with us. But this is very much fits with the way that God works. He says, you know, again, with the story of Gideon going all the way back, I want my 300 against their thousands. Um, the Lord's always for the underdog. And this very much sets up as, a, as an underdog story. 
but it also shows itself to be a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Number, so number three on your handout, Peter's speech is proof of Jesus' promise. What do I mean by that? Well, remember, Jesus had said this in Luke 12 and elsewhere. Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay. This is exactly what's happening here in Acts, isn't it? Peter is being dragged before the rulers and the authorities. What am I going to say? But then, did you notice that? It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and went on. It's a fulfillment already of this promise of Christ. You don't know what you're going to need to say. Don't worry about it. Holy Spirit's going to give you words to speak. Now, my question with this, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. Does that still hold true? Does God still work that way? Esther, you're, you're nodding, nodding your head yes. Um, do you want, want to share? Um, when I was working, um, uh, it was kind of known that I was a Christian. Mm-hmm. And one day one of the gals that was working with me came to me and, and wanted to talk. And uh, she had quite a burden on her heart with um, her sin. Yeah. And wondered about that. And so... I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. <laughs> but the words came out of my mouth, reassuring her right. of all the things that, you know, I'd heard over the years in, uh, being in church. And, right. And um, so by the time it was all said and done, she knew for sure that she had the assurance of yeah. forgiveness. And by faith in Jesus, she could be assured of eternal life. Right. Right. And so, you know... I mean, this, this is, I think, it's an encouraging word for us. It's not um, to say, okay, well then I guess I'm never going to study the Bible or, you know, uh, pray or do these sorts of things because I know just when the time comes, I'll just have, have the words. But obviously it's, it's a both and kind of thing. You're steeped in the scripture, you're in uh, relationship and communication with God. When those times come, then it's like it's just, it just comes out of you. Now, that's not to say that you always do it perfectly, Right? And sometimes you just bungle it. Actually, I'll just let you in on a little secret. Every week when I get down from that pulpit, immediately I think of something else I could have said. And every week. <laughs> but I had a, a friend who's in, who was in show business. Um, but he said, he said when he, he used to work in Hollywood, he said, you know, you never tell them which one is the real performance. He said, it's always a rehearsal. It's always a rehearsal. <laughs> And the idea was just that, you know what? There's always going to be another opportunity. For preachers, mercifully, for us, maybe not for you guys. We're coming back next week, right? <laughs> or Wednesday, as the case may be. Um, there's always more to be said. And in our cases, you know, nine times, 99 times out of 100, there's going to be another opportunity. Uh, you might kick yourself because you were at the bedside of someone who was passing. You didn't say everything you wanted to say. And those sorts of things do happen. But more often than not, far more often than not, there's going to be another chance. So you bungled over your words. Or also this, and Becky, I remember you sharing a story to this effect. You don't even know what you said, but then still God works it later. You're like, did I, 
Did I say that? I thought I was just a total doofus. Well, you were a total doofus, but God worked through you anyway. It's good news, people. This promise still holds true. Peter, these guys, I mean, how many times did Peter put his foot in his mouth, right? But there's the Holy Spirit speaking through him. It's an assurance for, for all of us. Yeah? So going back to that Luke passage, is what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit mm. specifically? Is it denying that those filling out of words can happen? Or is it just denying that the Holy Spirit exists altogether? Or right. what is an example of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Very good. So I'm, I'll, and I'll just be, you know, it's kind of an aside. I, I brought it on myself by putting this passage on there. But, <clears throat> but it is. You read that and you're like, wait a second. This is like the unforgivable sin, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is the way that we traditionally have understood it. That the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us, brings us to faith, right? Um, I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Christ Jesus my Lord or come to him, but the Holy Spirit called me by the gospel and led me with his gifts. Small catechism. So uh, the Spirit's office, his work, is to bring people to faith. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit then is to, with a stubborn, hard heart, refuse, refuse to believe. I mean, so in a sense, it's sort of a, a longhand way of talking about unbelief. Really, it's not some secret sin and it's like you accidentally committed it one day, right? And you live your whole life in faith, trusting Christ, and then you die. You come to the pearly gates and Peter's, you know, looking over the ledger. Oh, good. Yeah, going to church, believe in Jesus. This is great. Oh, wait a Oh, my goodness. It was a Tuesday. Uh, you didn't. Oh, man. Yep. You, you did. Sorry. Blast me against the Holy Spirit. So we'll see you later. Um <laughs> And not like that, right? And I'll, I'll say this too. I mean, this is really, I think, the most important thing, that if you're worried that you ever committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you haven't committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, right? It's those who are not concerned about it, who are just pushing forward in unbelief um, that we would be concerned about. Yeah. But it's not like unbelief is blaspheming the Holy Spirit because, I mean, Paul says, you know, help my unbelief. Right, 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 right. So, I mean, so, I mean like, yes. we all have moments of doubt. Yes, yes, yes. Even moments of parting of our heart yes. or not trusting God. And yeah. so it's almost like a sin that is almost only proven after the fact. You know, of like, yes. you know, someone who can continually ref refused yes. that. That's right. No, and I, I mean, I think that, bottom line, I don't think that we can really know in this life. Right. Um, who has, who has done that? Yeah. Well, Jesus said, whoever rejects me before men, I, you know, reject yeah. before my father. Whoever acknowledges me. Rejection. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's that act of rejection and not merely a, a kind of passive wavering in faith. Um, and not only that, I would say that it's a persistent active rejection. You know. Um, so, but thank you, Becky, for uh, drawing it to our attention. <laughs> Can of worms. <laughs> exactly. Just all over the place. Okay. So then uh, Peter continues with, with his sermon. And um, there's, uh, he's, he's uh, kind of throwing a little bit of shade at these guys, too, when he's like, so if it's for a good deed done to a crippled man that I'm here, it's kind of like, oh, really? You guys have nothing better to do than to drag me before, just out here healing crippled guys, but yes, we've got a big problem with so I like that, you know, Peter. Well played there. It's the Holy Spirit at work. Um, but the big point that he's going to make again and again and again, we heard it in his previous sermons, this Jesus whom you crucified, but God raised him from the dead, 
by him this man is standing before you well. And then verse 11, um, this allusion to the Old Testament. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This is a passage that comes up quite a bit in the New Testament, and it's a, um, it's a quote, quotation, or an allusion from the Old Testament. So, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus himself quotes this um, in his parable of the um, unworthy servants. And then um, comes up again also by Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, I'm on page 2 of your handout now. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So it really captures, again, that sense of the vindication of Christ, that this one whom was, who was set aside and rejected, and denied by men, now God says, nope, he is the, the rock of refuge. He is the one who is the foundation of our salvation and that of the entire world. Now, that's happened in Christ. Okay, but let's get to the real big uh, big hitter here in verse 12. when Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So number five on your handout, salvation is found in Christ alone. <clears throat> There's that old parable I remember. I've heard it so many times You know, at my state college. We'd hear it as when I was an RA um, we, as part of our training, we'd hear it, the one about the elephant, right? And uh, there's all the, um, the different blind people are, are feeling the different parts of the elephant. And the one man feels its tail and says, oh, it's a snake. And another man feels its uh, ear and says, oh, it's a stingray. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and everybody says, and the, the point of the parable, as I was taught it, was, see, you have your truth. I have my truth. Hey, if he thinks it's a stingray, let him think it's a stingray. What's the big deal, right? We're all, we all just have our own you know, part or piece of the truth. But what's the fatal flaw in that parable? It's not a stingray. It's actually an elephant, yeah, right? You're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, you're, you are in trouble. That's what cracks me up thinking about that. Like The parable itself undermines what it means to say. There's actually a reality there, independent of your perception of it. Yeah, that's not to say that people don't have a misapprehension. They don't misunderstand things. And I'll even go one step further and say that um, they have some inkling of elements of the truth. As Christians, we don't need to deny, for example, if you find among Muslims, there's many things about Muslim moral teaching that is very similar to Christianity. The law is written on the heart of, hearts of men. We don't need to be scared of that. Now, when they're revealed scripture, they take the law then much further. And there's things, of course, about it that we want to, want to reject. But were there places in other religions where they, they have some element of, of God's truth? We wouldn't have to be afraid of that. Because in, at the end of the day, all truth is God's truth. But if they're saying it's a stingray or a snake, that's where we say what 
as Paul will say later in Acts 17, what you worship as unknown, we proclaim to you. But, uh, I mean, as you pointed out at the beginning, this is something that really rubs people the wrong way. Why do you think that is? Why is it that this has become such a, a controversial, difficult thing for, for folks to grasp, to say salvation is found in Christ alone? Yeah. It makes you kind of exclusionary. Okay. You know, and, and people then think, you know, we're judgmental because, you know, you right. only go to heaven one way. Right. And it's not your way. Right. <clears throat> That's right. So that you're kind of exclusionary and there's only one way, it's not my way. Who are you to say? And you feel kind of judgmental. Yeah, Esther. I think people don't like it because, you know, they can't uh, do it their way. Uh. You know, I gotta, I gotta, yeah, I gotta do this and this and this. This is the way of salvation through Jesus Christ and Him only. Well, I think it's it's better to have a world where people earn their way. Sure, right. You know. Yeah. So it, it makes people one way. I gotta conform to Yes, this. right. And it goes against the sin nature. It goes against the sin nature, and it, again, it's especially countercultural too. Mm -hmm. Where we think, no, I, you know, I, I get to say for myself. For myself, so good. Other other things, uh, yeah, Becky. I had a grandparent who just bristled at the thought that someone would think she wasn't good enough. And it's like that's she, not the point. She was generous. She was right. civic-minded. She loved us like crazy, but she could not. Yeah. Humble herself and come to terms with the fact that a savior was necessary. Yes. That how could I be sinful? Right. I volunteer taught sewing. Right. <laughs> that actually is the one thing where the Lord's like, all right, you're all set. You volunteered sewing? Come on right in. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that it's helpful, too, because sometimes we'll get ourselves into trouble in terms the way that this is framed. Because sometimes people will say something like this. Um, you're saying I have to believe in Jesus to be saved. And it, sound, it can sound, when you put it that way, like it's just sort of arbitrary or capricious. Like God's like, okay, let's spin the wheel. How are they going to be saved? They have to believe in Jesus, okay? And if you don't, you're out. Um, rather, it's that all of the world infected by sin already is under the, the wrath of God. That's already condemned. We stand condemned already. And God in his love, we heard it in, in the reading today, God in his love wants to rescue and save the world. It's not that he's being unfair or capricious, it's just the opposite. In his love, he wants to save those who are already doomed to die. So it's not like, oh, God's saying, hey, there's only just one way, right? When you could be going, you could be taking I-75, you could be taking 31, you could be taking all these different routes, but God says, no, it has to be this one way. It's more like, you're in a burning house. Here is an open door. This is the way out. And somebody being like, why don't you open the window? Right? <laughs> like, well, oh, that's totally beside the point. The door is open. The house is on fire. Get out. Now, we could take that analogy even further because Christ is the one. It's not the kind of thing where we're just rationally, okay. I think Christ is the fireman, you know, runs in and buildings coming down, lifts us up, takes us out, okay? Um, but back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is that what you're going to say? 
Backdraft is the next movie. Backdraft. <laughs> I got Groundhog Day out of the out of my system. Right. Now we'll go to Backdraft. All of the big early '90s favorites, right? Um, so yeah. So I mean, to tie into the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thing. So what does that mean? That's somebody then. It's like you know what? I don't want to be saved. I'm going back into the burning house. Is essentially where it's at. Salvation is, is in Christ alone. I mean, this is just, we go, go all over the scriptures. First Timothy 2, there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. John 14, 6, maybe the most famous one. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here's a quote from a guy who was a former Lutheran, unfortunately, um, but still had a lot of good things to say. A guy by the name of Richard John Newhouse. He says, Christ is not my truth or your truth. He is the truth. He's not one truth among many. He is the truth about everything that is true. He is the universal and cosmic truth. Everything that's true in religion, philosophy, mathematics, or the art of baseball. I like that. <clears throat> is true by virtue of participation in the truth who is Christ. The problem is not that non-Christians do not know truth. The problem is that they do not know that the truth they do know is the truth of Christ. He is, he is the truth. But let us pause there for like, questions or just, I don't know. I mean, it's such a vital thing and a, a challenging thing, I think, sometimes to talk about. So just questions or how can, we, how can we think about how best to have this conversation? Because it does come up with anybody who has questions about Christianity or, or how this works. For me, sometimes, it, it, you know, there, the, I, there is always the uh, debate, is there life on other, you know, like other bodies out there? You know? Right. And, and you're like, well, I mean, I, I know such little of that. Yeah. So it's always like, well, of course it could. Right? Sure, I mean, exactly. I can't say that they're true. It seems like there's so many different ways to go about this whole thing. I can't believe yeah. there's only one way right. to solve this one problem. Right. You know, it seems really just naive yeah. to think that there's only one way that this whole problem can be, can be solved. Yeah. Yeah. Or um, nowadays, even more kind of nuanced version of that, multiverses, right? You know, maybe there is at the same time another parallel universe and these are the same people who are like well i believe in science and so i can't believe in that christianity mumbo jumbo multiverses though and it's like <laughs> wait seriously like well, that's that's where we're at it's wrong because they can't explain what happens on like the sub atomic level when we got into the quantum level they can't explain right. what's happening there it doesn't make sense based on the laws we have. So they say, well, if this is happening, we can't explain it. There could be other ways to explain it. But right. just go back to the faith thing, it's hard to have this concrete truth yes. and say this is the only way. Yeah. Newhouse has a good way to explain it, like it's the truth. But still, even then, it's like, really? That was our one unifying yes. truth. I mean, true. at the end of the day, we're never going to be able to massage this so much that it's inoffensive. And you just have to kind of grapple with that at the beginning. like. It's, it's not like if I can just put this just perfectly, just so, then it's going to be universally accepted and understood. Like it's, it, it can't be. I think the most important thing, though, is to stress um, the grace side of it and not to allow people to, to frame it in terms of, 
you know, God, the unfair, judgmental guy that's just, you know, randomly throwing people to hell. No, it's that we are creatures who already are racked with sin and stand condemned already. Uh, go if, at, later in John, go to John, John 3. So this was the, the passage that we had today. And um, there's some really important points that are made um, also after the section that, that we read. So it's page 1055 in the Burgundy Bible, in the CPH Burgundy. So, well, first of all, a verse that we did read, verses, verses 16 and 17, which can't be heard enough. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It should not be taken for granted that it's love that compels God. It is not spite, it is not anger, but it is a a heart of love from the Father that pours forth this plan of salvation. And Jesus, when he comes for us to redeem us, does not do it out of a sense of victimhood or, you know, the last man standing, I guess I got to do this, but out of a joyful spirit of obedience. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus did it out of joy and love. And then verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And so skip down to verse, at the end of the chapter, um, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So we are in a, this, our, our basic default position right now is as sinful people. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. As Isaiah said when he saw his vision of God. I myself am complicit and culpable and so is this whole world. But God in his love and his compassion and his mercy has not allowed to leave it there. But has come for you and me. That's it. Uh, but not everyone's going to believe that. Yeah, man. Well, I think John chapter 3, verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Right. Thus his work should be exposed, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. That's part of the accountability people don't like. Yeah. If, if you really are going to take that first step and acknowledge what Christ did for you, then what are you going to do with it? Yeah. After that, yeah, and people don't like to be. None of us like to be told we're wrong. No, and I think this is where it's tricky too, because we think um, we we assume. Well, this is like a, a, a ra- we can have a rational conversation with people about this. Let me present the facts. You know, evidence that demands a verdict. So, you know, Josh McDowell put in this famous apologetics book. I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's extremely insufficient because for all of us who are already, we, we are invested in our own way of life, right? And so we can't just hear these things as, um, a sort of, in a sort of passive, uh, cool kind of way because it means that I myself need to change, that I need to repent. I mean, this is, to, this is still true for us as Christians. Like, let me be perfectly clear here. Like, we still have things that we hold on to, um, sins that we still, you know, have pet sins that we bring along like, okay, yes, come with me. Um, it's, it's all of us. 
but to hear the call to repentance and to recognize, yeah. This is why, again, I, I think it's, it's so important for us as Christians bearing witness to the gospel um, to lead with mercy and to make clear to people, like, look, the, the goal is grace. The goal is not judgmentalism to make you, look, you're, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner too. That's why we need Jesus. He did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners, not those who are well in need of physician, but the sick. But when I recognize that I'm sick, then the flip side of that is, you know, like for those of you who have had um, heart issues, or heart, heart surgery, and then they say, hey, you know what? It'd be a good idea if you stopped eating a dozen donuts every morning. Like, who are you, doc? It's like, well, hey, look, I'm just telling you, this is, you got to change the way, the way you're living, right? Repentance. I want to bring up something else, and it kind of goes to what Chip was saying, because this is the other um, point that people will often make. Well, what about, okay, anytime a question starts, what about, you know, okay, here it comes. Um, what about um, so-and-so living in darkest Africa or the aborigine in Australia who doesn't even get a chance to hear the gospel? How can they be held accountable for rejecting it if they never even heard it? Hmm? This is maybe something this is, you, you've wondered about or wrestled with. Um, I mean, we've, we've talked about it before, but um, the short answer is, we don't know. We leave that up to God, right? This is what the scripture says, like, judge not lest you be judged. What that's really talking about is eternal salvation. We'll leave that up to God. But this is what we know. You need to repent and believe, believe in him. Um, but I think the, the uh, more apropos way of addressing that when somebody brings that up is, Yes, but you have heard. I don't know about those folks. And I mean, there's some people who will be really quick and, and rush to say, they're all going to hell. Yeah, you know, just like, sign them up. Um, I'm, I'm not there and I don't think we need to be there. Like that doesn't really get us anywhere. Rather focus on that personal conversation. Like, yeah, that's a big question. And I wonder that. Here's what I know. I have a God of love and mercy who did not uh, send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And I know this that you have heard this message. Jesus himself does this at the end of John's gospel and, and Peter sees John following Jesus. He says, well, what about that guy? Is he not going to die? And you know, Jesus says to him, don't worry about him. Worry about your own self, Pete. He's paraphrasing. Um, and uh, same kind of thing when there's the, uh, some people come up to Jesus in Luke 13, the Tower of Siloam fell. Were these guys worse sinners than the other ones that the tower fell on them? And Jesus is like, doesn't matter. Repent, or you likewise shall perish. Like, stop worrying about these things that you can't fix, that you can't answer. You're only accountable for what you yourself have received. Okay, you're responsible for that, though. So, I mean, some folks are going to bristle at that, and they still want the hypothetical kind of stuff. But it's never really about those questions. It's always about really like deep gut, heart kind of thing. Any other questions or, or comments about this? It's a big, it's a big topic. It's a challenging thing. Emma. Well, I know whenever we have discussions, they always bring up like Hitler or these horrible things. Right. Like, well, so the argumentum ad Hitlerum. Yeah, you know, like all the guys come over. <laughs> Wait, so they're concerned that Hitler's going to be saved, or what? What's yeah, they say, well, if you only have to believe in Jesus. 
then um, suppose Hitler, you know, was really a Christian, but his life didn't show that. But you know, it's like what at the last minute maybe you know he was saved. Well, that's interesting. So that's more the flip side. Like, hey, yeah. I'm worried about people getting in. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not worried about the folks who aren't getting out. But you're telling me that Frank down the hall, the guy, you know, who, uh, yeah, that's that's yeah, that's its own thing. Yeah. Got issues too. So. <clears throat> Salvation is in no one else, but it's in Christ alone. And, uh, but we can be grateful for that, that it is in Christ alone. Okay, let me read this uh, next section here, verses 13 through, through 22. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Ah, there's so much great stuff here. But number six on, on your handout here on page three. What distinguishes the disciples isn't their learning, but their Lord. I just love this verse, verse 13. They saw the boldness of Peter and John, perceived that they were uneducated common men. The Greek words there are uh, agramatoi, they were, um, you know, uh, what would you say, illiterate, and then idioti, which you can translate yourself. <laughs> they were astonished, but they had recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what matters. That's what matters. Sometimes we can just get ourselves in uh, fits and think, well, how could I ever be a good witness for Christ? That's, you know, pastor's job. He's the one who's got all that book learning. You know, he went to seminary. He's the one who knows all this stuff, but how, how could I do this? You know what? You've been with Jesus. That's what matters. That's what matters. That's what changes us is that you are with Jesus. 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is how he works. Or John 15, one of my favorite passages, Jesus says, I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You belong to Christ. You are branches that have been grafted into the, the vine of Christ. That fruit comes forth by his power, but only through him. It can't be through our human strength or ingenuity or wisdom simply being with Christ. That's the, that's the way that it works. I think it's just such a, a profound offhand comment here. They had been with Jesus. May it be said of all of us, right? 
you know, I'm idiots for Jesus, right? We could start a new group, okay? <laughs> Uneducated, you know, uh, common people, but who had been with Christ. It's still the case for us today. Then they go on and they say, you, know, you want us to stop talking about what we have seen and heard. How can we? We can't. We're not able to stop. Um, and this is, uh, as I was looking around, this is kind of a recurring theme. First among the prophets, Jeremiah says, at the bottom of, of page three of your handout, the love of Christ compels the speech of his disciples. Jeremiah says, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. And then Amos, this great line, the lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? God has spoken, the lion has roared, how can we not respond? And Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. The love of Christ is what compels us. It's that necessity, that burning within us. <clears throat> and to the extent that we feel those embers um, flickering and fading, that can be a, a call for us to be with Jesus some more. Maybe I need to spend some more time with the Lord and continue to have my heart warmed from uh, the warmth of, of his love which continues to rekindle the flame of faith in us as we study the scripture, as we pray, as we get together with other believers, as we take baby steps toward showing love and mercy toward others. This is the, you know, what I think of as the, the dishwashing conundrum, right? You don't wait to wash dishes uh, until you feel good, okay? You just do it, right? My wife says, will you please wash the dishes, hon? I said, you know what? I'm a Lutheran. I don't do things until I have a good motivation in my heart because I know God isn't going to like it otherwise. No! You wash the dishes. She'll give you the motivation. That's right. She'll give you the motivation. Well, uh, no, but in the action, in the action, suddenly your heart starts to be warm. Don't wait. Say, well, okay, I, you know, I don't have that burning within me right now, and so I'm just going to wait until it, it comes. Take, the, take those first steps. Who can you bring a, a cup of cool water to today? You know? Where can you extend just a little olive branch of mercy? And in the course of that, the love of Christ continues to grow in our own hearts. Ooh, fake yeah. it till you make it. What's that? Fake it till, fake you, it make till you make it. Yeah, I've got uh, an inkling lined up. I'm not sure when I'm going to run it yet, but on the virtues of hypocrisy. And uh, <clears throat> you know, hip hypocrisy gets a, a bad rap for a good reason. Um, but uh, there is something to be said for how do we ever change? It's by striving to be someone who I'm not right now, right? You're not just gonna magically one day wake up, oh, I'm a kind person now. Like, you act like a kind person. And if somebody says, you hypocrite, you're not really kind, you know, say, well, that's true, but I'm working on it, right? <laughs> Growing into what is already true of us by grace and, and through the Spirit. So bottom line with this whole passage, Jesus rubs off on his followers. And uh, Luke, as just the master uh, author that he is, he's portraying all of these parallels between Christ and, and the disciples. So these, the disciples are being challenged by religious leaders, even by Annas and Caiaphas, same guys that um, went after Jesus in John 18. They're questioned about their background. Of course, this happened to Jesus many times. The fear of the crowds is there. That's why they don't um, uh, convict them or do worse to the disciples right now. That was 
That was Jesus all over. Of course, being unjustly seized. On and on and on it goes. Reason is simple. The Lord says it in Luke 6. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Or even more pointedly in John 15. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So to circle back to the main topic of our conversation today, sometimes when you're announcing, proclaiming, sharing the good news of what Jesus has done for us, people are going to reject it. They're going to call you names. They're going to call you a bigot. They're going to try to cancel you out. All these things that we do in our world today. We shouldn't be surprised by this. By the same token, you respond with gentleness and respect. Leave it to the Lord. He's the one who's in charge of all this. We know that at the end of days, he's going to sort it out. In the meanwhile, we're going to strive to love as he has loved us. So thank you very much. Next week, we'll pick up with the second half of chapter 4. God bless you.